we're super excited to kick our first um, future forward session off today with um, Trevor and some great panelists um, and just kind of start to talk a little bit about what our future looks like at MG2. So um, thanks for all who have joined. I'm going to pass it off to the team. Um, quick reminder, turn your video off, your um, audio off as you join. And if you do have any questions, we'll have a short Q&A at the end. Um, feel free to uh, jot those down in the little um, chat section of the WebEx and I'll bubble them up. Thanks so much. Thanks, Alan. So I'm going to uh, kind of start today's discussion with a um, kind of a quote, or I guess it's more of an excerpt um, from a reading I came across a couple months ago. A long view of history would show that there's never been a better time to be human. There's less war, less poverty, less hunger than there's ever been. Life expectancy around the world has never been higher. Yet we face a confluence of crises that threatens to plateau and erode the long arc of human progress. A global pandemic, climate catastrophe, social, social fragmentation, economic insecurity, political polarization. These challenges have forced us to rethink long-standing systems and shared beliefs, especially this year as the pandemic has illuminated and magnified many of the dysfunctions of our society. Questions like how should we relate to each other socially, support each other economically, consume restoratively and organize ourselves corporately are more important than ever. These questions present us with an unprecedented opportunity to reimagine the systems and structures on which our lives are built. Yet when you look around, it seems that there is very little reimagining happening. Most innovation is merely derivative, a new application of an existing technology or the recycling of an idea. Actual moonshots are few and far in between. It seems that our, as our inventive focus has moved from atoms to algorithms, our aspirations have sunk lower. I just, I think uh, kind of what that's speaking about is such a great uh, maybe context to set for the conversation that uh, I'm hoping to kind of have today and um, hoping I can lead it in a way that makes sense. Um, but I just want to kind of set some ground rules for the participants and uh, for those uh, listening in today that we're not really here to solve anything. We're not really here to make any declarations about what the next 50 years is going to be. We're not really here to say, this is what the future is going to be. We're merely trying to share our experiences and kind of explore what's possible uh, within our minds, in the context of uh, now, uh, within everyone's shared experiences, and kind of learn from each other, uh, learn where we come from, uh, learn our backgrounds, and then together maybe build this uh, what this possibility could be. Um, and kind of uh, looping it back in, like I don't want to. Uh, begin the conversation like directly uh, with us at MG2. I kind of want to start broad. And then as we uh, make our way through the hour, we'll kind of zoom back in um, to our profession and then uh, from specifically. Um, so before we jump into it, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I just want to uh, kind of acknowledge uh, the four panelists that have um, joined me today. And, and for me personally, I have varying relationships with all four of them. Um, Joy, I've never met. Uh, and Ren and Mitch, and really I have more of a relationship with uh, to some degrees. But I think it's important to kind of have these conversations, not just with people you're comfortable with, um, but kind of challenge each other. You know, we're all colleagues. Um, be able to be comfortable to kind of uh, be open and honest with each other. Um, and like Ellen had said, um, do feel free to drop questions in the chat throughout today. You can direct them at any one of us individually um, or us as a group. Uh, just something that might pop up, thoughts you might have. Um, 
something you want to uh, maybe you know uh, uh, join with, I think would be great. Um, so before we jump in, uh, last excerpt. I know I'm just it's a lot of me talking for the first ten minutes here, um, but uh, uh, this is another excerpt from a reading. It's called Dream Thinkers, and I think this is kind of where um, I want to start today's conversation. Um, so to invoke this liberation of inquiry, I propose we reintroduce the ancient practice non-objective imagination and speculation unattained by the colonization of economic ends, those innate yet deeply buried human beliefs that have propelled us through the millennia, those tools of sensing so familiar to artists, poets, prophets, and heuristics. I call this practice dream thinking. Dream thinking is the practice of encountering, exploring, understanding, and communicating stories of possibility. I call these stories functional fictions, the narrative scaffolding by which our hopes, dreams, aspirations are built, and shared with others. The stories that catalyze a faith in the possibility of the impossible, a new way of being together. Dream thinking is response and counterweight to dataism and the cult of productivity. Dream thinking is the practice free from constraints of product and labor, feasibility and expertise. Dream thinking favors slow reflection over fast reaction, the nuanced over the new. Dream thinking holds space for the preverbal, for the unconscious to be conscious, it's a space, it's a safe space that affirms uncaged authenticity, mystery of experience and the suffering of our world, friction of paradox that is so often the soil from which true creativity grows. Dream thinking understands that our outcasts, the feelings and beliefs marginalized by corporate culture are actually our outposts, the place we need to fortify as we explore the frontier of our shared future. And this is really where I wanna to start today's conversation with four of you. Um, so to kind of introduce, uh, we have Mitch Bride, we have Joy, we have Ren, and we have Lily joining me today. Um, and I kind of want to jump into this uh, last part of this conversation, uh, talking about outcasts and outposts, um, and really kind of go with some rapid fire questions to really kind of see where the four of you live on maybe your outer edges. And question one is, you know, when you think about the future, what makes you most excited? And uh, Ren, we'll start with you. Yeah, uh, thanks. Awesome question to start. I think, you know, so much of the narrative around sustainability and, and the disasters we're facing currently tends to be really negative focus, um, focused on stemming the bleeding, you know, getting back to a, a point where things are at some kind of equilibrium. And I think the great thing about human beings is we are able to strive, you know, for, for vibrant futures, for, you know, more, more than just sustainable. So I'm excited about you know, really looking at what what are restorative architecture uh, architectures and infrastructures. You know, these sort of long-term, uh, multi-functioning projects um, that have existed throughout human history. Excited to see those start to exist again, and, and really thinking about you know, we have a lot of big problems. How do we combine some of them, uh, tackle them at once? Initial thought there. Joey, how about you? Um, kind of, I think what excites me the most is just the idea of like being more connected within the physical space too. I think right now there's a lot of connectivity going on, like, you know, through uh, social media, just being on the internet and like feeling that kind of like world's getting smaller, but in a lot of ways, there's also the idea of like, you know, for me, like I'm just like the idea of like getting to ride a high speed train and get to like LA within an hour or something like that. Just like more kind of like connectivity within the physical sense. And I think like we're 
there's a lot of aspirations to make it happen, but I think we're still at a point where we're yet to actually see that formalized. Great answer. Mitch, how about you? Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's a little bit maybe more esoteric than specific, but I think the future is like laden with possibility, you know, like nothing is set in stone. Everything's available. Everything's possible to us in the future. It's only like in the present when we're making decisions, it kind of starts to inform what's happening. But, you know, even being a kid and thinking about the next school year that was coming up, right? It's just like, it seems so exciting because you're getting new teachers, you're getting like maybe a new school, but like everything is like so cool in your mind because it's all possible. And I think that kind of still holds true today where there's, you know, we have proven, I think, uh, time and time again that, you know, humankind is capable of amazing things. We're also capable of not great things, but I think that you know, if we kind of strive together, like I think the possibility is there for us to kind of um, create like, you know, a really great place, you know, touching on like both of the things that Joy and, and Ren had mentioned, you know, like we can, you know, do a lot, you know, that's kind of a bigger view, but I think even smaller just for, you know, personal things, like there's just so much possibility, right? Like you can kind of still dream about the future because the future isn't here yet. And I think that's always kind of exciting. I love that. The future isn't here yet. You can probably, we can probably say that for the rest of our lives, right? The future will never be here. So, keying off of what Mitch said, um, it, it just reminded me, one of the things that makes me hopeful for the future is watching my kids play. Um, just sort of seeing that, that spark and um, knowing that we, we do have that ability and the ability to solve problems while enjoying ourselves and, and doing good. Really? You want to you want to finish off this question? Yeah, I kind of take it from a lens of more local and thinking about Seattle and and Seattle. Like I think Seattle's an exciting place that you know you know thousands of people have been moving here for a while now, and like it's a growing, expanding city center, and that's very um, not the the same as other american cities right in terms of city centers it's always the the urban sprawl so i think what's unique about like i'm excited about is like seeing how seattle continues to grow but you know with those that growth we have all these issues and that's like a big uh you know in the next coming election for us it's like okay what's going to happen in our future and i think that's something to be excited about you know we're, we're getting expansion on light rail and you know how transit continues to grow in this city and how do we you know come back together uh, as hopefully, I don't know, COVID will probably be with us for a little bit, but as we get come back together, you know, more in the city center, how, how does that look or does it stay or how do we connect more? You know, and I think that's like one of your other questions later on. It's like, how do we connect as people as we <clears throat> continue growing and moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, uh, I like dated myself last couple of times. Like I was like just like talking to Kylie. Like, oh my gosh, it's almost been two years in this pandemic, and like trying to imagine like coming out of it. Like you know, I feel like we've just been like told, oh, like you know, we're gonna come out of this like a different way. Like, oh, it's just around the corner, and it's like this maybe uh, untapped belief that like it's just gonna quote unquote end one day. Like some Monday things are just gonna end, and it's just it hasn't happened yet. So maybe on that note, I'm gonna ask the opposite of the question I just asked you. And when you think about the future. What gives you the most anxiety? And really, I'm going to start with you. 
I think it's kind of the same answer is that the, the uncertainty of uh, like what's going to happen because I feel like, you know, what are what are the policies that we're going to come up with to continue bringing people here or is it going to turn people away is, you know, it's like we don't know what that is. Is it going to turn like we can't really see what's in front of us because we're right here right now, but like, you know, three or four or five years it was like oh we could probably identify like when that happened which way it goes in the city of seattle if it continues growing to like a million people or does it go back down if you like look at american cities growth trends right and it, it all stems from growth of you know our corporations here like all the big tech is here and i think the anxiety that i have is like all right how do we interact with each other now instead of just hopefully through, you know, social media and, and, and be able to talk and have these type of discussions versus mm -hmm. listening to like a YouTube video or something. That's <laughs> kind of where my uh, anxieties come from. <laughs> totally. Joy, you want to uh, go next? Yeah, um, <laughs> I think kind of along the same lines as Willie, like, you know, I'm excited or I'm anxious about what could be exciting and I have this joke uh, amongst some of my friends that I get anxiety about my anxiety, just because it's, you know, it's about the outlook. You can be anxious about something, um, but if you change your perspective, you can be excited about it too. And I feel like, you know, I get anxious just um, about, you know, like social interactions, like how are we going to um, reintroduce ourselves around it to, um, you know, in a post COVID society or, if you can even call it a post-COVID society, because it's like transitional COVID society. Um, but yeah, I think I'm just, I'm right now I'm in like a positive perspective. So the things that usually give me anxiety, like the unknown, I'm just excited to see what comes out of it and like how we react to it. So if nice. you asked me on a different day, I would have a lot of anxieties, but today's a good day. <laughs> Maybe I'll ask at the end of this conversation, see if it changes. <laughs> Uh, Rin, how about you? Oh, man, uh, people doing their own research, I think. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit right now. You know, um, the public discourse isn't an internet comment section, I guess. Or, you know, I, I, I'm afraid about people's view of expertise is not important, um, becoming more widespread. That seems to be something that I'm seeing more and more of. So, um, the the importance of including voices that really know what they're talking about and have credentials and things like that. I think you know, as architects, that's something that we all need to argue for. So, my response there. Nice, Mitch. How about you? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, hand in hand with my earlier response of everything's possible. Like you know, we can also f it up pretty badly. So. I think that's what's like not exciting about the future. And even, you know, as you, um, as was kind of mentioned about, you know, COVID, uh, we've seen how everyone's handled a threat to our existence kind of thing, you know, if you will, because it was so unknown in the beginning and so, so many people kind of really struggling with it. And yet somehow there was so much derision over what we needed to do to preserve public health. It's kind of like, wow like it is nuts you know just kind of like watching it and like looking back like you said for two years and it's like if we would have had handled that differently 
as a global society, would we be in a different place today? And I think that's kind of, you know, as Ren was getting at, you know, I think a lot of people are more interested in self today than ever have been. And I think that interest, the extreme interest in self, I think could be, it's like something that gives me a lot of anxiety about what kind of decisions we're going to make as a collective moving forward when it no longer becomes about what's good for everyone, but it's really just what's good for me and what's my own personal truth right now and what am I feeling and that's how I'm going to make all my decisions because it only impacts me. And I think, you know, that's obviously coming from a very U.S. and American perspective, but I do think that kind of seeing seeing how we handled the situation last year with just everybody's own individual thinking about what is science and what is not science. And, you know, that's, that's kind of scary, especially as we are on the precipice of kind of seeing a lot more of these bigger kind of things happening that like, we're not going to be able to solve from a very small local level. Like I think we're going to have to really um, rely on, people to come together and even in voting and sharing your voice, like I think is going to become more and more um, pressured in the future, um, just to be able to make sure that we are kind of doing, doing things together and not just totally solely based on, you know, the individual perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I share a lot of those same uh, anxious feelings as well. Just, uh, you know, I think social media really, magnifies how important people feel that they are uh and right you can like hunt and find your own echo chambers to reinforce i guess your own beliefs over and over and over um and faster and faster and you know just i think someone else mentioned it i think Marina, it was you like the prospect of like i did my own research and it's like you know that can be like true and false in a lot of senses like the Nicki minaj center she's like i did my own research then you see stuff later that's like can you share your screen with me? Like, what does that look like? What does doing your own COVID research look like? Like, are you like Googling? You're like, do your own research for... <laughs> so, yeah. So, I was just going to say, you have to do your own research for a really long time to get even like a cursory degree, right? Like, totally. It's not just a search. Yeah. I mean, and like architects, like, right? Like, oh, and like, you know, I mean, it's like we're in school for how long? And you have to get like how many thousands of hours to get licensed. Anyway, I don't want to get down too much of a rabbit hole. Um, I'm going to kind of switch up. I have two more kind of rapid fire questions uh, for each of you. Kind of talking a little bit more about the future. Uh, machines will soon, will quite soon be outsourcing their work to humans because it will be the cheaper option, which is kind of a scary thought to think of. Is there any aspect of architecture design that is 100% future proof? Uh, Mitch, I'll start with you. I mean, I would like to think all of it is, but the more that I think about it, I was like, you know, there probably is a lot that could be automated. But I think the one thing that's like there is like, the nuance and kind of, you know, we make a lot of decisions every day and synthesizing a lot of different information. And it's not just data, it's also feeling and wants and desire from clients and, you know, interpreting things in, in unique ways to be able to address the data, but also kind of express it uh, in a more artistic sense. And so I have hope that that will kind of remain in architecture for a long time that kind of human aspect um, of the nuance and, you know, kind of the small decision making about it. And really, um, you know, machine can't think of what it's like to live someplace, but, you know, we can. So 
I would hope that we could make a better place to live than a machine could. But I don't know. Maybe we can't. But I'd like to think that. That's a good bumper sticker for like future parents of architecture kids. Like my kid makes a better spot than a machine. <laughs> Willie, how about you? Uh, I think it's really twofold for me. One, one being aspect of like um, the that there it, history has shown that we've always reacted to what what is now, you know, uh, <laughs> and and there's a reaction to like the style or whatever, and and there's a there's a progression of the design where either it goes back to like a time period before or a reflection of people's moods or whatever, and I think that that will it like will always be there because people want will always have want certain looks and so therefore we need someone to design it um but the other aspect of it is you know like I, I'm more my day-to-day -day is dealing with cities and permits and like each city in itself has their own ways of reading what this one code means and mm -hmm. i don't think you could create an algorithm to account for that they just want this ada path here you know, so it's it's uh, I think there's parts of that that are too human with the city that unless somehow all the cities come together and decide to do one path, like I, I just think that we'll always need someone to kind of help push that process forward. So how about you? Um, yeah, I think there's certain aspects of like architecture and design that definitely aren't like future proof, but I'm kind of optimistic in the sense that, you know, the roles of architects have um, uh, transformed since, you know, even the 1500s, the 70s, whatever. And I think there's always parts of being an architect that, um, you know, you can't replicate in the artificial sense um, to get a little bit like existential, you know, when you're like experiencing a space and walking through a space that like instinct and that kind of um, like the senses can't be replicated by machines and the thought of like that kind of storytelling and um, trying to transform that emotion to like a client and whatnot. I don't think that can be replicated by machines either. So and it's very optimistic and probably one day, you know, they'll probably try to get machines to do that, but it's not all it's so like artificial in that sense so i think in that way um i don't think you know that kind of sense of design will certainly be future proof but um depending on the parameters of this question i think you know any you can you could make an algorithm for permitting really i i challenge that i think um there's certain you know plan checkers that you know have a certain way of looking at things and depending on you know what exactly they're looking for if they're specific about like ADA turn radiuses and such, you can just like do to do, do and then you like address that correction. So challenge you. Willie, I'll give you a chance to rebuttal. Uh, this is... <laughs> uh, I mean, I think there's a there's a certain level of which you can have some basic things, but there's some wild things like in California that that like, as you know laws change like each city adopts them differently and it's just wild and i never know which one which where the bar is at times where i'm like working in a different city in california but so that's that's my my take on it uh rin how are you 
Yeah, kind of playing off of Mitch a little bit. Um, so I think the future proof part is, is sort of helping people decide how to occupy space. Um, I think that our one of our key uh, sort of skills is, is understanding how processes spatialize, especially you know, multiple processes that it takes to run a business or whatever the function might be. Um, and then to Mitch's point, how do spaces personalize? Um, you know, how do you not only get the functions you need, but how do you make it yours? So those are the two things I, th I really think that architects will be able to keep doing, uh, no matter what the tools are. Uh, it's really about working with people. Yeah, no, and I, I think I share a lot of like crossover between a uh, lot what was said i mean it's almost like the uh the future of uh aspects of architecture will kind of be like the ikea version right where it's like there's like thousands of like iterations of the same thing different colors and you can kind of like choose your quote-unquote personalization of this thing but everyone knows the difference between like a handcrafted piece of furniture versus something that's kind of made for profit uh and made in like mass quantities and both are needed right and they both fill very different uh avenues um, and, you know, people still like design the IKEA furniture. It's just maybe loud and marketed in different ways. And people still need like handcrafted pieces. And I think there's always a middle ground between the two, but maybe all four of your answers have, I don't know, give me more anxiety about like what that tool is that we'll all be working with, where it's maybe, yeah, all of our codes are automated. Like what a dream that would be. Like, you know, the city comes back to you and it's like, it's already been solved. I hear like, uh, you know, one hour turnaround on the response, but I'm ready to get to you. Um, to kind of wrap up this question, I know uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the pandemic and found a way to kind of formalize in my head. So the apocalypse arrived one day. It's not what we expected. Given the pandemic, Western customers revealed that panic purchase of choice were flour and toilet paper. So the four of you, what were your pan pandemic panic purchases, if any? And what do you think influenced your decision? Uh, Ryan, I'll start with you. Um, well, I bought some wood before it got expensive. <laughs> and my little brother-in-law was out. I think people have heard this story. But uh, my little brother-in-law came out from San Francisco pretty early on um, because suddenly things became difficult there. And we were posted up, so we built a skate ramp and spent a lot of the pandemic hurting myself in various ridiculous ways. Um, but it was this wonderful confluence of like a design problem that then we got to work on physically that then led to us, you know, exercising and hanging out together. Also it was a dance floor for my daughters. So that was, that was my pandemic purchase. Nice. Joy, how about you? Um, well, I spent most of the beginning of the pandemic in a 500 square foot studio loft with my husband and we were both working from home. And um, so I didn't really have a lot of space to store, um, you know, pills of toilet paper and such. Um, so I, like I think many people, um, decided to fill the little space I did have with plants um, and try to just kind of bury myself within my little like uh, house plant jungle <laughs> as much as I could and try to make it feel like I could be outside. Um, so more of like a kind of emotional, mental satisfaction than a physical one. I think we share the exact same experience. I see one behind me. Um, Mitch, how about you? Yeah, I think it was like the first weekend. Um, 
once everything was shutting down and we bought a pair of dumbbells and a jump rope. And thankfully we did because like later we were like, oh, we should get maybe some different weights of these. And we couldn't find them anywhere. So a pair of dumbbells and a jump rope kept me from gaining the, the COVID the COVID pounds at the beginning. So it was actually turned out to be a pretty healthy pandemic purchase, but it was still kind of like a scramble and a panic purchase for us. Sorry, <laughs> Willie, how about you? Uh, I think for me, it wasn't made a specific thing. It was more, uh, I think I was, uh, what I would do was to break up my day was go to Costco and walk around until I could get out of the house. And then I'm spending way too much money on stuff <laughs> I don't really need. And then I was spent the rest of the time cooking because it was like, all right, now I can do this, this or this. And it was just kind of my way of breaking up the day and like, oh, there's people around instead of being in my house by myself. So, yeah. Well, I know it's a small sample size, but I'm glad none of the five of us uh, indulged in this flour and toilet paper hoarding. I don't know. Like, I would go to the store. I'm like, where is the flour? Like, are people pretending they can bake? Or like, what? Like, the sugar's not gone. None of the other things are gone. It's like literally just the flour. It's because everybody had those sourdough starters, Trevor. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, wait, did anyone here have a sourdough starter? Even if it wasn't a panic? No one? Man. Wow. Bucking the trend. Yeah, I think if you have like pets, it's like really hard because it's like another pet that you have to like feed and stuff. So I wonder how many are still living. Like of all the sourdough starters that started, I wonder how many made it through the pandemic. Um, so to kind of move on, so now that we've kind of understood a little bit of everyone's um, kind of experiences the last couple of years and kind of, you know, you're starting to tease at the outer regions of maybe um, our existence, I want to kind of move back into this dream thicker scenario and um, kind of talk about a couple scenarios to people in terms of uh, what I'm calling, I guess, simply put, just dream number one. So uh, the first one's kind of about climate change. Um, and, you know, there's, I think, a lot we're starting to deal with a little bit more and more the ramifications of kind of this 100-year debt that we've incurred, you know, and we've kind of built our economy around this, um, you know, extraction, oil-based, you know, uh, kind of linear process. And um, kind of looking at our future, uh, now till you know like 50 years like 2071 um and like our new reality of climate um, things not being the same um i guess my question to kind of start off is what do you think architects aspiration should be uh, in this new world of uncertainty uh willie i'll start with you <clears throat> man um that's a tough question I, i'm really prepared for that one so uh Let me, let me think on it for a second. Come back to me. Totally. Does anyone else have any initial thoughts? I know. I like so. I'll I'll, I'll uh, give you all a second, and I'll tell the participants. So I intentionally didn't ask them these scenarios or questions. I really just wanted to gain uh, uh, their emotional reactions. So uh, I know I'm like uh, this is a free ball and questions here. Rin, do you have any thoughts? Uh, thank. You. Increased cab collaboration is going to be super key. I think there's just more and more specialists that are going to get involved in projects as you know the need to find restorative measures on site and off site increase, the need to deliver projects with less waste um, more efficiently. I think you're already seeing more projects, 
project teams, including more people meeting earlier on projects. I think the integrated project process is really going to be absolutely necessary going forward. Do you think that's what we should be? Maybe, uh, I mean, can you maybe expand on that a little bit more? Like, uh, like aspirationally, like we should like, you know, be co more collaborative or like maybe going to dig so a little bit? I was thinking specifically about uh, projects with like contamination in soil where you're tackling a bigger issue than just the building of a building. You know, you're really trying to be um, acting in a way that leaves, you know, the site in the city in, in a much better case than you found it. Um, I think those type of projects hopefully are something that, you know, are undertaken more, you know, as cities densify as we look for new places um, and externalities are weighed uh, differently. Um, and to have those delivered successfully, it really does require having more voices on the table. Hmm. So, Mitch, how about you? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to care about more than just the built environment. And I think, you know, I think it's going to take all of us. There's so many things, different things for <laughs> us to all care about, and it's going to take like the entire industry to kind of create the change. But I do think, you know, more and more, it's you know, buildings are one of the largest contributors to what's depleting our resources. And it's not just in operations, it's in building, it's in, you know, getting things to the site. And so I think, you know, it's easy to say that you don't have control over it all. But I think uh, if everyone in the industry starts to care, um, then I think we'll be able to influence our clients and influence the, the built world around us. And, you know, I mean, we need spaces to inhabit. That's like part of living on our world. Um, but I think we also, the industry um, hasn't always been the best steward of our natural resources that we have. And I think it's going to take a lot of care from a lot of us to, um, you know, transition hopefully hopefully we can make the transition to a world that's you know carbon neutral but um it's going to take each of us to care about little different things you know like once you get into sustainability there's so many different things to to handle mm -hmm. and not one of us can handle any of those things on every project all the time and i think it's going to take each of us to kind of care about something more than just one little piece more than somebody else to help drive that forward and uh, you kind of touched on the second question I was going to ask, so I'm just going to go uh, back to back for you. So talking about, I guess, like social stigmas or stuff within the industry, what do you maybe see within our industry that's like hindering kind of this progress forward? Uh, you know, I think it's a lot. I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're not, we're not the ones financing all of our projects, right? Like mm -hmm. we work for other people that are doing things. And so, um, you know, we're kind of at the behest of others, but that doesn't mean we don't have a voice in it, right? It's not just like we're supposed to just blindly follow, but I think um, cost, I think the idea that this is how it's always been done. So like, why are we doing something different? Like people don't like to be the first one out there trying new things, um, especially if they're putting a lot of money on it. Like, I don't want to bet a lot of money on something and it fails for me. Like that's kind of the mindset I think that a lot of, um, people that are building, you know, and financing our projects are coming from. So I think, um, you know, that's a huge challenge and a huge hurdle. And the other thing I think is, you know, what's kind of cool is like talking to Candid and the material library and material lab about 
so many different cool products that now can go back to the landfill and all that and they can or not to the landfill but go back into the the process and be remade into something again and diverted from the landfill um but then we also need like how do we do that you know like it's cool that the idea is there but like is that mm -hmm. happening you know is the idea there so i think you know um i think there are some challenges i think i answered your question i kind of got on like my own little tan tangent there but um yeah no totally you did absolutely uh joy i'll let you kind of answer either one both or either yeah i actually wanted to um echo mitch's sentiment about you know people are so resistant to change even when we're facing something like you know the ramifications of the current um climate and the fact that you know it's we can't really turn around the effects of what we've done for the past couple hundred years anymore um but still when facing that people are still like so resistant to change and i think um you know it's hard to turn around a ship when it's moving that fast already and it's it takes a lot of collaboration of like all hands in um, agreeing that you know we need to take these small steps together in order to you know actually kind of create something that doesn't have such a detrimental effect on the environment i mean i think um from a bigger picture status like the buildings that we build in the cities that we build they're changing the landscape in ways that like people aren't even able to fathom like um you know like facebook like those guys just wanted to create a social media network and now it's created this like whole different type of news outlet that people are relying on for news and they're not going to their actual sources and like um actually reading new other news outlets they just get it from facebook like much in that kind of sense we're like building these cities and not really thinking about the effects of the like whole urban plan and how we're going to um address the like whole kind of cities as you know as a whole i mean i think in a way when we get like into these issues we're not thinking of it as a bigger picture and we're just trying to like slap some um, tape on a wound and i think we need to really um, approach it kind of holistically and think about the ramifications that these small moves make. Absolutely. So to expand one step further, do you think civilization has the capacity to kind of board and like alter this trajectory that we're on? <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> hey, that's an answer. That's yeah, no, that's an answer. I kind of, I kind of share the same, uh, to that question too yes we do but kind of like what mitch said like are we you know so within our capabilities so yeah i mean you know, do have extreme hope in like the upcoming generation you know like i think there's so much you know it's entered into like the consciousness of you know people that are teenagers now and that are excited and want to make a difference and so like that gives me a lot of hope. I mean, I don't know that I have a lot of hope for those that have kind of been in the status quo for a long time, but mm -hmm. I do think there is hope in the younger generation and even in our generation, probably to a lesser degree, but there is a lot of, you know, consciousness around it. So like, I have hope, you know, again, it's like, I think everything's possible. And I think we've shown ourselves to be really uh, ingenious when we have to be, but I think that's the kind of crux of the issue is like, mm. I don't think it's the emergency for everyone 
that it is for some. And, you know, that's where we're not getting as creative and ingenious about combating this kind of larger issue because we're not aligned on the reality of it. So. That's a really good way to put it. Willie, how about you? You got any want to jump in on? <clears throat> yeah, I've just been noodling on what you guys have been talking about and like the what your original question of like the future of architecture. And, you know, we kind of gravitated towards the, the, the talk about sustainability and progression of our society of like how we develop, right? And, you know, I've been really my own personal experience right now, like I'm renovating my place and taking down walls and these walls that I'm taking down have two by fours that are 100 years old, you know, 1904, two by, like nominal two by fours. And I'm like looking at this being like, wow, this is like amazing. I'm going to take all the freaking nails out and reuse it. And I'm just like at that micro scale looking at the sustainability, like, I got to reuse this stuff. But like, you know, if you look at the big picture of all the developers and builders out there, they would just like scrap everything and throw it out right away and buy brand new and just like mm -hmm. it up, you know, and I'm just like, well, look, looking, thinking of that, that micro scale of like my experience and like, how do you amplify that all over the cities of the Seattle? Like, you know, a few blocks away where we used to eat, get lunch, you know, that building was torn down and just like, oh man, that, that thing's mm -hmm. in the landfill now. Like, how do we reuse or how can we implement or push ourselves to like get into that space of being all right how do we reuse that like you know Mitch was talking about the reusable or like some of those materials that they've been reusing but I'm like what percentage of that is saved from that building or whatever and I'm like how mm -hmm. do we do more right and I don't know that's that's just something I've been thinking about and how do we push that some more no totally and I think that's you know I think it's been mentioned a couple times right like how like one, you know, we don't necessarily finance projects. We're a really small cog in the machine. Um, but like, yeah, like what is what is our role with like the demoing of a building or the reuse of a building? I think kind of started to touch on like that aspirations, right? It's like, you know, I think someone had mentioned in their opening remarks about like the reuse of buildings and like, you know, that's really exciting for the future. Like, I don't know, like what what steps do we need to take to to say like, hey, like that's not free. You don't tearing down a building and putting in a landfill, that's not free. That's like the cheapest option, like nominally, like money-wise, but like that's really expensive, like on a planetary scale. Like that's like a huge cost on a planetary scale. So like, how do we, I don't know, like what what roles can an architecture firm, person, professional take to, I don't know, maybe start to shift that narrative to understand that cost. I'm, I don't know who to, I don't know, does anyone want to jump on that question? It's kind of a long. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I can jump in. I mean, I've been thinking about this as they tear down the building next to our office here. Like incrementally, they've been chipping away at these massive concrete stair stacks for like, you know, the, the light stuff went down quick and the heavy stuff is coming down very, very slowly. And I mean, it's huge piles of material that are just sitting there and, you know, some of it might get reused, most of it's going to the landfill. Um, I feel like, you know, there should be the, sa the same way that if you buy a property with contamination, you're you know, required to deal with it. You should also be, you know, there should be some accounting for what what are the material costs, what was the energy, water, carbon, you know, all these metrics mm -hmm. that went into creating this building. And then, you know, once that accounting is sort of understood, like really what are the opportunities and some kind of impetus to think more creatively around the use of these structures? Because, you know, I, I feel like 
the normal analysis is like, oh, does the floor to floor work? Nope, boom, get it out of here. Yep. Um, and it, it works on paper right now, so that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Financial calculation needs to catch up with what we all know to be true, which is that like built buildings have a ton of value. Mm. So yeah, I'm excited for things to shift more in that direction too. As somebody who spent a lot of time both uh, studying and working in adaptive reuse, I think there's just incredible creative potential beyond what we've been thinking. So that's got me excited about the future. Yeah, guys, I think it's, it's Alan. I wanted to hop in really fast. Um, we actually sent around a um a survey to the firm uh yesterday for predicting the next 50 which talks about this exact topic um i'm going to insert it into the chat so um if you're interested in this topic um take a look at our survey there's um a little space to contribute your thoughts sketches um i think this is a really really awesome topic um so in the final 12 minutes here uh, uh i'm going to try to this is all paralleling uh, really nicely, uh, kind of jumping into this, I guess, dream two scenario. And it's like pretty similar, I guess, like where we had just ended uh, this last topic. We're kind of talking about, you know, architecture, construction's always been like you know, really slow to adapt. Um, and even like this idea of like reusing buildings, like Randy just said, floor to floor doesn't check out, like these really simple metrics for us, like scrap it. it. It just doesn't work for what we're doing. It's easier to start from scratch. And there seems to be right like this, conflict between our profession and like this advancement of technology and how fast things change versus the way and like we've mentioned the way that we've done things before is the way we're going to do it uh so you know when we talk about like this um i guess converging storm of things are advancing really quickly our industry might be like really slow to adapt you know what aspects of our industry do you think or wish i guess this is kind of a another future ask for each of you what aspects of our industry do you wish we could leave behind right now and maybe another way to ask that is what uh, about our profession seems to be overly unnecessary or maybe outdated um start with you i know these are our hard, sorry hard-hitting questions <laughs> please let me know if i'm making sense i can try to expand a little bit who are you starting with trevor sorry Ren, go ahead um well, I feel like there's a huge swath of it that got somewhat swept off the table, literally during the pandemic, like physical drawings, the need to you know, do all these very wasteful things to go through the permitting process. I think that, um, you know, that's something that's already made, made a huge, huge step. But yeah, working through some of the inefficiencies in that way, I think has been gigantic, just as, you know, a very small piece. So yeah, getting, getting everything online. Or how are you? Um, I mean, I can't. I double down on Rin's um, answer. You know, there's a lot of um, all anything that was paper was discarded. Um, before COVID, I was like printing out massive, massive sets and getting everyone to stamp and sign it, and like getting paper cuts, etc. And that's all gone now. I mean, even if we're, even as we go back into the office, um, there's very, very few jurisdictions that require um, paper prints. And um, I think that's one aspect of it. And, you know, I think kind of in general regarding the profession, I think it's also just about being more um, kind of generalized, honestly. I think. I know that uh, Ren had mentioned um, 
know, people getting into more like kind of specialized areas of architecture and design. But as a young architect, and I still consider myself young, <laughs> um, I think it's really important to like be exposed to different kind of areas of architecture and design to really like build that kind of roundedness in your profession and be able to contribute to like different um, areas of discussion that you may not be able to if you really kind of get into a specialized sector. Hmm. How about you? I mean, I, I, I kind of agree with both of them that, you know, that cities have evolved quickly, you know, where, which they wouldn't have done before. And so if we and Costco, um, the account that I work on, and so they've progressed in that way. Um, that was unnecessary before, or and or faster now. The process has been uh, made quicker. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of what I can think of on top of my head right now. Match anything from you? Yeah. Well, one, you're only gonna like pry my drawing board and trace paper out of my old dead hands because <laughs> like I will never let that go. Um, but I think uh, probably more for me, it's like more of that mindset, right? Like the mindset of like, we're just servants to our client, the mindset that we have very little influence, you know, I think that's probably what needs to go faster than anything else is just changing and shifting. Like we do have influence. Um, you don't, People at MG2 have influence, you know, you don't have to work at a firm that you've seen do sustainability or do, you know, really, um, you know, significant projects in the last several years. Like we, we can do those things. Mm -hmm. um, the possibility is here for us and we can, you know, shift and move with our clients. And then, you know, I guess if at some point our clients aren't doing it, maybe architects should finance projects and show people what can actually happen because I think then you know it's like then everybody jumps on board and it's like oh you can make that pencil out cool like yeah sign me up like once it's done um but I still look at the bullet center and how long ago has the bullet center been around like yeah 10 years you know yeah. somehow somehow still like people aren't like striving for a net zero building so I think it's just that mindset that we that we're just following I think that we should shift to you know, we're leading. That's great. I think last question here in the last six minutes, you know, so the world in 1970 and the world today in 2020, you know, this kind of last 50 years, um, I think it looks very different than kind of uh, where we're at presently. And as we kind of project out the next 50 years, uh, more specifically, I guess, to, to us uh, and our firm, like for each of you, um, what do you kind of hope MG2 can achieve in the next 50 years? And uh, yeah, I'll follow up with a different question. What do you kind of hope MG2 can achieve in the next 50 years? Um, I guess looking back as we are now at 1970, what do you hope looking back now at 2020, we're at 2070? And I'm trying to look at someone's face. Willie, how about you? Seems yeah. that answer. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's, we've already kind of touched base on this, right? You know, like the evolution of design, you know, I think Mitch, Mitch Pride uh, has, has nailed on the head that, you know, we want, maybe it is us financing projects in the future or, or, and developing our own projects. And I think that that would be an amazing feat. And then also, um, I don't know, making like, 
we're always continually striving to make ourselves more efficient, right? And so how do we how do we do that and inf and influence the sustainability of Seattle and our, our future? So nice. Brian, how about you? Yeah, piggybacking off of that, um, I would love to at that point be able to say that we have successfully made the argument for our value in the building process and in the development of uh, you know the built environment um, as quarterbacks of projects, as imagineers, as you know whatever that next level in our involvement is that uh, we can help you know, take the ideas that we have and really really implement them in ways that can impact the future. Great, Joy. How about you? Um, I mean, I think this kind of conversation today is like the first step and I'd like to see, you know, what's the next step, you know, like how do we kind of take what we've talked about today, more collaboration, more um, kind of design thinking and um, being able to advocate for our design thinking with our clients. Like that's what I kind of like to see in the next 50 years, a little bit, you know, still with production, but also kind of this part of like let's have the conversation and collaboration early on so that we're developing this project as partners hmm. mitch yeah i think at some point we're just going to acquire nbbj and you know <laughs> and then yeah, wait what's our name is it mgbbj2 <laughs> yeah lots of letters and yeah. at least the two in there <laughs> Oh, that's no, I think more seriously, I mean, I think there's like so much, like, again, I just keep harkening back, like, there's so much possibility for us. And I think, you know, seeing how the firm has grown so much, even in the last eight years, you know, shows me that the firm can grow tremendously in the next 50 years. And I think anything is available to us. And I think, you know, we have well-established markets, but I think those markets will continue to shift. I think our project types will continue to shift. I think our expertise will continue to deepen and you know i don't know like i'm not going to limit us by saying we're only going to do this thing or that like i think we can do anything that we want but i think it's going to take the whole firm to do it you know it's not it's not just on uh our leadership shoulders it's great yeah i just want to um i guess that's a really great way to kind of wrap up like a really great discussion i really want to thank the four of you for uh being brave enough to kind of come in on this unknown journey with me. I know I didn't give you much. Uh, I really want to applaud you for kind of jumping in to some of these questions, really giving some honest um, and like some real honest and like emotional feedback. Um, some of these questions I know probably not what you were expecting. Um, yeah, I appreciate you humoring me and uh, kind of filling up this hour really nicely. So um, I want to thank everyone for kind of joining today. And Ellen, I wasn't sure if you needed to do anything to close out the hour. No, I don't think so. We didn't get any um, questions. I did um, see that Mitch Smith joined at the bottom, so I just didn't know if he wanted to add anything. I just uh, enjoyed the conversation uh, and uh, really expansive. I think that uh, uh, good job uh, challenging their their perspective, uh, Trevor. <laughs> so, I know that's what you're intending to do, but uh, no, I agree. Just more conversation like this, it's it's stimulating, kind of informs what the long term view is and and uh the, you know the potential that it can be realized with the firm and and with all of you uh, absolutely looks, so great job and it looks like sorry mitch it looks like we did get one um question from remy i don't remy i don't know if you want to speak up and ask um but it looks like he has a question around ai and design dude we got 60 seconds 
Me I'll too. Ask the question in uh, 30. Um, I think I'm most curious about Rin's perspective here um, regarding AI and design because the, at the beginning, the conversation is about was about what can machines do when it comes to architectural design. And I feel like um, the facts are pretty illustrative in the, in the, in the sense that electric, you know, electric circuits can operate at 1 million times the speed as squishy biological ones, which means that if you were to run an artificial intelligence, uh, an artificial general intelligence for one week, it could accomplish 20,000 years of human progress so I feel like there is a big disparity there between the perception of what machines, what artificial intelligence can do, how much can it can accomplish. And I feel like that might render humans, human architects into a luxury service rather than um, something that we need because we want that emotional connection. What's your perspective on the evolution of technology and design in that? Moment? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually pretty optimistic about the possibility of AI. You know, big data is this huge, shiny orb that we're all kind of reaching for, but it's only as good as the ability to analyze it. Um, it's only as good as the data set. And I think the AI can start to plug in in ways that, that allow us to glean more from these big data sets, you know, as we build more interconnected um, buildings that are reporting on their health, on their activities, on the health and well-being of their users. The more the AI will have a role in taking those data streams and making it functional, and you know, both in terms of inputs that architects can use to design better buildings, but also in terms of you know feedback for the clients and their ability to operate buildings and, and also optimize. I think we're going to become more important in the post-occupancy phase. I, I would hope because of AI. So that's my that's my quick response to that one. But that's a great question. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you, man. Perfect. I think that takes us right up to our 1001. Um, just want to thank everyone. And I know there's one more of these in two weeks, right, Ellen? I don't want to miss them. November, November 12th. So um, that'll be our last of the year. And I guess uh, after the 50th anniversary celebration wraps up, we'll kind of figure out how to continue these because I think they've been really fun for everyone. So Great. Well, thanks, everyone. And thanks again to the four panelists uh, for joining today. Yeah, you bet. Thank Thanks, you, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.